Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name's Oscar. My name's David. And this week is another Womp Womp Wednesday, or if you're in Germany or any other associated country, uh, you're going to be having a Womp Womp Thursday. Hell, it may be even a Womp Womp Friday for you if you're tuning into this podcast a little late. Uh, it's a lot of Womp Womp, though. 49ers so lose their womp 11th womp. game in a row in a game where we might see potent, where it maybe was a success in Chicago, maybe, uh, based yes. on draft position anyway, yes, maybe was. a success. Uh, of course, this week we're going to talk about some NFL quick hits. We're going to review the Chicago game. We're going to introduce a new way of breaking down the upcoming game against the New York Jets because you know what? We like to have fun on this podcast too. But first, let's get to the rundown. And of course, top story, what you drinking, buddy? Uh, same as last week. Accumulation, New Belgium. So we're, we're on we're, a two-week rotation, huh? We're yeah, I think, I think that's how it's going to go. That's, that's pretty <laughs> much where we're at right now in life, I guess. I've got uh, I've got my whiskey as usual, but I've got a beer that I absolutely love. It's a Weekend Warrior Carbock Pale Ale, uh, brewed in Texas because I like some Texas beer. So you'll hear that top pop a little bit later in the show. But let's get to it. Let's talk about the rundown. And first is actually a pretty sad story. We'd just like to extend our condolences to Chip Kelly. Uh, he his father Paul passed away last week, so definitely condolences to him and his family. And I think definite lead story. Because Chip's dad, badass of the week, was buried in a 49ers sweatsuit. I mean, impressive, really. Uh, that's not even a joke. I'm not even being facetious. That's some shit yeah, I would joke about. But that's actually true. That I did not make that up. That is not yeah. me bullshitting you. He preached loyalty to his son. And so he was buried in a 49ers suit to support his son, which honestly is pretty badass. Pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty especially like since I, I guess he was uh, someone who wore a suit to work every day. So didn't want that, uh, you know, fancy ass suit on rolling with a 49ers sweatsuit. Pretty, pretty cool. Absolutely. So definitely condolences to Chip Kelly and his family. But now we get to the offseason rumors. It's starting. The offseason is now, ladies and gentlemen. Jay Glazer is reporting that Chip Kelly will be back in 2017 no matter what happens. And that, to me, basically means that either Balky is coming back or uh, Tom Gamble is being promoted. That's the only way Chip Kelly is back in 2017, I think. I mean, the the other, I think, scenario is that, which isn't really a probably a good one, is, you know, if, if they do decide to fire Balky and look outside for uh, another GM, which I, again, don't really think that's the most likely scenario that plays out here, but... If they were to to go that direction, I mean, it absolutely could see a situation where Jed York takes a lesser candidate because he demands that Chip Kelly remains the head coach, right? Like, uh, th- that's not unreasonable that you get somebody that maybe isn't the most qualified person for the job, but is like, hey, I want one of these positions where there's only 32 of them in the world. So I'm going to go ahead and take it. And yeah, I'll deal with Chip for for now, if even if he's not my guy. But yeah, I mean, to me, I'm I'm really kind of setting up with the the gamble thing. I think that's what is almost certainly going to happen here. That's what seems to make the most sense. Um, how do you feel about Tom Gamble? Like, what, I mean, obviously, we don't know a lot, and it's hard to know, uh, you know, a lot about GM candidates from our position. But like, how do you feel about making that sort of promotion and going that direction? I actually am not against it, mostly because I like Chip Kelly and think Chip Kelly should get a second and potentially third year. I think you 
if you think the relationship between a head coach and a general manager is important, and I do believe it is, then that seems to be a natural fit. I think what Tom Gamble does with the draft pick that we have will be highly instructive. And I also think, frankly, that you'll begin to see you you will begin to see some some different behaviors, I think, both in terms of the way that the, the way that they scout and the types of players they pick. And and that I think will tell you a lot. I do think that if they go with Gamble, I think they have to give Kelly and Gamble effectively two years, which means you get three years of Chip Kelly. I think after that, then you blow it all up. You literally fire everyone and clean house and and move on. And and I think you you go a completely different direction. So if that's the case, I actually wouldn't mind seeing that because I don't know that there's any other. I mean, unless Scott McLuhan wants his old job back, and I don't think that's happening. Um, yeah. I don't know of anyone right off the top of my head that maybe someone from John Schneider's tree or something that would immediately be like, oh, yeah, that's the dude. Yeah, I think it could make sense for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, you certainly don't want to get stuck in that cycle of where you become the Cleveland Browns, right? And you're you're firing everybody every year or two and you're you're just completely starting over like at some point you have to kind of take and I guess the the approach that the Raiders have taken, right, where they had some patience with Reggie McKenzie and with that process. I mean, it wasn't until his third year on the job, I believe, that he got uh, the, the draft that, that brought um, Carr and Cleo Mack in, into the, the Raiders. So uh, and then obviously it took a couple of years for even that core to kind of solidify and for them to add some more pieces. And then finally, now they're having, uh, you know, kind of a, a the best season that they've had in quite a long time. So, uh, you know, maybe we we tend to see teams kind of follow the mold and, and try to emulate teams that were recently successful. And so maybe you start to see more teams having a little bit more patience, seeing how that worked out for the Raiders. But I, I think, yeah, it sucks if you get into that cycle where you're firing somebody all the time. And and the other thing too, that I think is important with gamble, right. Is we've talked about, I don't think we're quite as down on, on Trent bulky um, as a lot of people are, even though I think we've definitely reached the point where we think that he, he without question deserves to be fired. Um, I think there are some better things there than some people want to give him credit for. And so if you think that some of his processes were were pretty good, which, uh, again, I think that a lot of some of the, the high level stuff made sense, like wanting to build through the draft, not spending a ton of money on free agency, you know, not really splurging on high end free agents, um, things like that. If, if you think that Gamble would kind of take some of those processes and, and keep them in place, but he might be a better talent evaluator because that was where bulky obviously failed is he wasn't able to um, actually follow through on these processes and find good players. Like if you think that he can be an improvement there, then maybe you see something uh, you know, he's able to kind of take all these draft picks that, that bulky's accumulated and do something with them. So uh, yeah, I mean, you could definitely see you could, you can outline a scenario where that would kind of play out. Okay. For them on the other hand, and, and this is the last one I'll make here before we move on to some more rumors. If, gamble is that much better of a talent evaluator then you would think that he would have put his stake in the ground for a couple of these players and, and we wouldn't see so many whiffs uh, even when he was here as, as pro personnel guy I and mean, which we, we literally at like i hate it when work life and like football life cross over but we just went through this where we're looking at promoting someone who had a voice in hiring someone and that that person that they they didn't speak up about they were like oh no like sure whatever hire them was pretty terrible and they knew they were terrible because they had applied at another job over and over and over again. It's like, say something you should have said something. Cause if yeah. you would have, we probably wouldn't have hired him. And so <laughs> you would think that bulky is not so, and maybe he is right. You would think that bulky is not so egotistical to be like, 
Tom Gamble, I like you. I'm going to promote you. What's your advice? Don't draft that dude. You know what I'm going to do? Draft that dude. Like, you would think yeah. it's not like that, but at the same Who time, knows? I mean, it is Trent Baalke, right? Right. Yeah, so hard to know that dynamic for sure. The, the next offseason rumor that we're getting is Ian Rappaport reporting that Colin Kaepernick is indeed expected to opt out of his contract at the end of the year. And quite frankly, I don't know how if you're Colin Kaepernick, you can approach any other decision. Because on the one hand, you opt out. If you play well enough, you inspire other teams to sign you. And I guess that's where he was at before Chicago. Now, even if you do and you play well enough where the 49ers still want you, you opt out and you get some guaranteed money. So either way, opting out is the best thing for you because you have control over where you go and how much guaranteed money you get. Yeah, it's not surprising that we're starting to hear that already. I mean, obviously, Kaepernick did what he kind of had to do in his situation, which is um, kind of deny everything and say that he's going to make that decision after the season and that he's focused on football. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's disingenuous necessarily or that he's, you know, not not being up front there. But I mean, the, the idea that he's going to opt out isn't a new thing. Like, I think pretty much everybody is expecting that to happen, um, because like you mentioned, really, regardless of the outcome, whether he wants to stay um, because, you know, he bulky gets fired, which is what he's he wants. And he develops a rapport with Kelly and he wants to kind of see what this looks like for another year, like it still makes sense for him to opt out and, you know, kind of uh, try to to get some more money and get some other offers there that drive up his and price. And you also don't negotiate a player option to then not exercise the player right. option. Exactly. Right? Like That makes no sense. It's like, I'm going to go ahead and, and put my flag in the ground here and actually negotiate for this, give up an injury guarantee just so that I can not actually take that player option. That makes little to no sense from Colin Kaepernick. So yeah. it's not surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. And that's a completely a non-story. At that point, it shouldn't be a rumor. That should be like a and. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, nice that we don't have to talk about another rumor, though. We can kind of put one to bed a little bit with Oregon um, hiring their head coach. So it'll just be nice. I mean, I was never. It's hard to say because I, I was kind of, I guess, in the camp that thought that Harbaugh wanted to kind of remain in the NFL as well. And, um, you know, who knows? Maybe that was mostly true. And then he just kind of happened to fall into what was a perfect situation for him at Michigan. Um, but I, I definitely am in the camp that uh, kind of believes that Chip doesn't really want to go back to college football and that, that he wants to kind of prove that he can succeed at the NFL level. So uh, at the very least, like the chip to college thing is probably never going to go away um, unless he like, you know, who knows, like wins a Super Bowl or something, then maybe it will finally. But um, at the very least, the chip back to Oregon talk is is going to go away for at least a season. Incidentally, head coach at Oregon, Willie Taggart, is the first apple to fall from the Jim Harbaugh coaching tree. He was an assistant here with the, he was with the he was with Jim Harbaugh all the way from, I think, the San Diego days and was with him at Stanford. And now he is the head coach at Oregon. He was with him with the 49ers as well. And now he is the head coach at Oregon. So we'll, well I think see if Oregon. He, he's not the first one, though. Like he's well, I think they got I saw Bruce Feldman, I think, who's a, a college football reporter for yeah. for Fox Sports, um, tweeted something. I forget the exact numbers. I want to say it was three. So on Harbaugh's initial Stanford coaching staff, three of those guys have gone on are now, are now currently head coaches at power five schools um, and Five of them are coordinators somewhere. You've got Pep Hamilton, obviously, in the NFL. He's the coordinator for Indy. Um, 
Who else have you got? I mean, in terms of I mean, of David Shaw, coaches, now Taggart, yeah. and then there's one other that just, I think, recently got um, a, a head coaching job at college, too, whose name I can't remember. So those were your three head coaches, and then five of them are coordinators at Power Five conferences as well. So, yeah, I mean, the staff that he assembled there, I mean, the staff that he assembled in his first, you know, during his time with the 49ers as well was pretty awesome. But that staff that he had in Stanford was was kind of crazy. Well, I guess this this beg or not, it doesn't beg a question. It's the wrong way to use that phrase, but it <laughs> it poses an interesting question, which is how do you define when someone comes off of someone's coaching tree? Because you just being a coordinator on someone's staff or being an assistant to that staff for a year or two doesn't then mean that when you get a coaching job, you are off of that tree. I mean, hell, Adam Gase was an assistant on Mike Nolan's staff. That doesn't mean that Adam Gase is off of the Mike Nolan coaching tree. Um, and yet we, we do see these coaches have their trees that kind of go out. And we know the obvious ones, right? Obviously, we know Bill Walsh's tree. Andy Reid has a tree at this point. Um, Which is just so, part of Bill Walsh's tree. Right. It's an <laughs> extension. Um, look, everyone is just, you know, it's everyone comes from like two coaches, basically. Um, Pretty much. It's but, like Parcells and... And Walsh are like the two main ones. It it all kind of goes back to them at some point. But at what point, like, how do you define that? Where do you draw that line? Is it you have to start as a low level assistant and and spend like your formative years with that person? Is it that you have to achieve, you know, kind of coordinator status before you move on? Is it a length of time? I don't know that it's any of those. I think it's more. um, Do do they take the same sort of philosophical approach? Right. Like, are you running the same? Like the things that you learned, I guess, under that coach, right? So with Jim Harbaugh, it's going to be, you know, the power offensive stuff, you know, running uh, big personnel formations, like and doing a lot of things with emotion. Like, do, do you adopt kind of the same principles that that coach has? So even if you're there for a limited period of time, but that that small period of time had a large impact on the way that you think about football and that you uh, are going to approach things now, once you become a coordinator or head coach, then I think that's kind of what ultimately matters most. And it seems like Taggart, which is actually going to be kind of an interesting thing with him going to Oregon is he was kind of that Harbaugh style offensive approach. Um, and then he, when he went to uh, which Florida school was it that he came up USF or UCF? UCF. Yeah. One of the either central Florida or Southern Florida, I forget. Um, but either way, Some like directional school in Florida, <laughs> he had to uh, kind of adapt things there. Right. And kind of change things up uh, and run a little bit of a different offense. And Oregon has been known, for a long time before Chip Kelly was there for kind of these uh, forward thinking offenses, fast paced, you know, doing spread stuff like that's kind of what they've had for a really long time there. So uh, it, it'll be interesting to see if he kind of tries to go that direction because that's what the school's done for a long time. Or if he tries to to kind of go a little bit more of that Harbaugh direction and, and change their offense significantly from what it's been. Interesting. Well, Last last story then on the rundown is that Torrey Smith, probably all around good guy on the team, has been nominated for the Walter Payton Man of the Year. This is, I think, Anquan Bolden has been the reigning Walter Payton Man of the Year for the 49ers. I believe one player gets nominated from every team, and right. then there's a, a list of finalists that are announced, and then one player uh, rules them all, I guess. And Anquan Bolden won last year, if I'm not mistaken, um, or two years ago, uh, and, and now we have another former Baltimore wide receiver sign of the 49ers <laughs> nominated for Walter Payton man of the year. So, Hey, if, if nothing else, Trent Balky sure as shit can pick 
wide receivers that are going to be Walter Payton man, man of the year. <laughs> Can't dispute that one. Nope. That's, you know what? <laughs> hey, he's not all bad. He is not all bad. But let's get into this Bears recap because, hey, you know what? I said it's a Womp Womp Wednesday, but we didn't screw up the number two pick. We are still in the hunt for that number two pick. <laughs> and, man, are we in the thick of that hunt. So biggest takeaways from the game of course, was the story of Colin Kaepernick and his inability to throw the ball. I believe the the graphic from Bleacher Report with him having a noodle arm showing how he had fewer passing yards than he had uh, than he had completions. Oh no, he had more sacks yeah. than he had passing yards. Uh, also, was, equal was, number of incompletions to passing yards. So there's a lot of things board. that you can do with those numbers that aren't good. So there's a couple of questions here I have about the way that it was handled, right? Number one, do you think that the benching of Colin Kaepernick was justified? Um, not really. Um, I I guess I just think it's a little bit odd, um, for, for a couple of reasons. Like one, he's obviously been, it's not like this has been, um, you know, kind of the trend for him so far. Right. I think, you know, most would, would agree at this point that, Prior to this game, he was kind of ascending, right? Like he'd, he'd gotten a little bit better each week, you know, a little bit more comfortable with the offense and uh, had one of the better games that he had had in a long time the week prior to this. So uh, he was kind of, you know, trending in a positive direction. And then obviously this was just God awful and and uh, a really horrible performance. But there are also some other kind of weird things going on with that, right? Like Obviously, you had the weather you had, you know, kind of everything going on with that. that that's certainly going to, uh, you know, diminish, I guess, any sort of passing stats. Um, and then you also, you know, had some some of the stuff going on with the play calling, right? Where, uh, I mean, he only attempted, he had 12 dropbacks, I believe it was. So it was five actually attempted passes, five sacks, and then he had two that were called back by penalties. So uh, only 12 times in three quarters did he drop back to pass. And Gabbert got uh, more than that. And I think he had um, it, it was the same. It was like 12 or 13 dropbacks in that final quarter. So they had it in like one quarter. Yeah. Like, it, do, you, do you think that this is do you think that this is Chip Kelly being a realist? Do you think that every because every now and again, I do feel like you get insight into a coach's true thinking and not their coach speak. You know, because what coach is going to come out and say, unless you're again, you're Mike Nolan. Hey, my quarterback is a pansy and he needs to, you know, button it up. And Chip Kelly is, has been more real talkish than most other coaches, but he's not going to come out and completely smash his quarterbacks. And he did say after the game that he didn't like the way the ball was coming out and he thought Blaine Gabbert, you know, could do a little bit better. So do you think that this was Chip Kelly's tacit acceptance that he didn't think that Colin Kaepernick could throw the ball well, you know, in this weather for whatever reason, and he thought Blaine Gabbert could do it better? Yeah, I think um, even if so with the Gabbard stuff, I mean, I I think you could argue that you just want to try to see something right. Maybe you didn't necessarily think that he was going to be a a huge improvement, but it's like, hey, obviously you can't get much worse than what's happening right now. Might as well give it a shot to see if you can get some sort of spark in the the fourth quarter and make a game out of this. But I, I think the the as far as the approach of not wanting to throw the ball a whole lot in general, like. I, I do think that makes some sense and is is kind of, uh, you know, an understanding of what this team is, what this offense is, you know, uh, and then combine that with the the weather that you're dealing with there and knowing that you're taking, you know, an already not good quarterback and you're putting him in conditions that are only going to lend themselves to him playing worse. So 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, the run heavy approach made some sense. Was he maybe a little bit too cautious and, and probably should have given him somewhat more of an opportunity to try to get something going in the passing game? Maybe. But I, again, I think he kind of knows, like you mentioned, he said some things throughout the season that really points to he knows what he has. And it's it, it's uh, not a very good situation offensively. Um, and I think that in, in that lens, the approach kind of made some sense, I guess. We're going to get to one of my favorite topics that people hyper focus on in the NFL, and that's hand size. Do, do you think that, yeah. that Colin Kaepernick's hand size actually had something to do with this? So you've got Colin Kaepernick, who I think his hands measure in at like nine and one eighth inches. And you got Matt Barkley, because, of course, here's the counter argument, right? Yeah. I think someone asked me on Twitter, you know, I, I've got to defend my I've got to defend Colin Kaepernick to, you know, a bunch of Seahawks fans or haters or whatever um, when I go into the office. And I said, and I, all I said was, well, he's got a great fro, like, because, <laughs> because you, you look at Matt Barkley and he clearly started having an issue, but then seemed to adjust. And part of that was the fact that his wide receivers were running free and his wide receivers were helping him, but he was able to get the ball out and at least roughly enough on target for his wide receivers to have a play. And of course, Matt Barkley has hands that are, I, I think, almost a full inch larger than Colin Kaepernick. You have Russell Wilson, who's super little, but has ginormous hands. And it's apparently directly correlated with his region of boom. <laughs> if you know the Sports Illustrated cover that I'm talking about. Oh, the uh, man hammer. Yeah, that's right. So is, is there this idea that while big hands doesn't necessarily, big or little hands doesn't necessarily guarantee or you know, inherently disprove success at the quarterback position, that having larger hands is an asset for gripping the ball in kind of rough weather games i mean i think it doesn't hurt right like i I just don't know that it makes uh such a tangible difference that uh you should really give a whole lot of thought to it right i I think it's kind of probably one of those things um where you need to hit kind of a sort of minimum threshold right where um as long as you're at this certain level like it's not going to be a huge difference how far above that minimum threshold that you are right so nine inches is what you're saying nine inches is the the threshold because that's going to make a lot of guys feel really inadequate (laughs) oh man uh not gonna go there you're not gonna go there at all oh come Um, on that's what it's Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think that as long as you're kind of above that, then it, then it doesn't really make too much of a difference. I mean, uh, again, does it hurt? No, probably not. Like I'm sure that Matt Barkley with his, you know, massive fucking mitts was able to grip the ball a little bit better and maybe that helped him. And it, it is hard to, you know, point to the weather as being a, a huge factor for Kaepernick when you can come back and say, well, Matt Barkley managed to kind of make it work somewhat. He was at least like you mentioned, getting the ball in the vicinity of his receivers and allowing them to kind of make a play. And uh, Kaepernick just wasn't able to do that. I mean, he was really off target on a lot of really these throws. Off target. Um, especially, I mean, the one that really stuck out was like the Vance McDonald um, route on the corner there that uh, was just way overthrown. I and mean, he looked like Blaine Gabbert in regular weather, yeah. which is something we yeah. have not been used to seeing the last uh, two or three weeks. <laughs> now there, there's another kind of coaching point that I thought was interesting. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it because at the end of the first half, I mean, the Niners had had, a, a, you know, a block punt. They had two field goals. And the way the game was going, you were thinking two field goals might actually win this. Like, it, they, they could actually win this. And then, with about a minute 12, minute 20 left in the first half, Chip Kelly starts to call timeouts. 
And he is he's thinking what at this point? He's thinking that A, he can either block another punt or or B, he gets that ball and what you're gonna drive down the field and score a touchdown. Like the only reason you're calling these timeouts is because you're thinking you can maybe block another kick. And it was at that point, I think, that Chicago goes, well, might as well throw the ball. Matt Barkley decides that he's a quarterback, and all of a sudden you have a blowout in the making. So go back to that coaching point. Are those timeouts that you call, or do you go into the half, up six, let the clock run out, and say, all right, let's let's play this one out? I don't. Yeah, I mean, so on one hand, I am usually very much a proponent of being aggressive, right? Like, I, I think that coaches too often like are, are take the passive route, take that safe route of okay, I'm not going to call these timeouts. I'm happy to go in, you know, with a six zero lead, considering uh, that my team is awful and that we're on the road and, and the weather is like it is, right? And I think in this particular scenario, maybe that makes a little bit of sense, but at the same time, like I'm not going to really go and fault a coach for for taking that aggressive path because I think that is generally the better approach. And yeah, it's it's kind of didn't work out so well, right? I mean, after you mentioned, so they got that ball, the the ball back and it was timeout after first down, timeout after second down, and then setting up a third and five with a minute 43, right? So you're thinking they're, at this point, Chicago's back in their own ter- territory. They're about the 24-yard line. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe even if it's not, you're thinking that, um, you're going to block a punt, right? Like in that weather, a lot of things can happen. Like it could be a shanked punt because it slips off the, um, you know, wrong. You off could the muff foot. the punt. I mean that too. Sure. There's, there, there's a lot of, I guess, more random things that could happen there, but there's a decent chance that you could get set up with, with relatively good field position um, and have time to be able to move the ball down the field and, and, and try to maybe tack on another field goal. So I can see that, that approach. And, um, you know, again, that's one that I would probably generally agree with. Uh, it just happened that Matt Barkley decided that after that second timeout that he was going to, I don't know, resemble a competent NFL quarterback for a little bit and, and put together kind of a string of nice throws. And that kind of did it. But I, I don't know. I think a, a lot of that, you know, pointing to that is is kind of the turning point there is probably a little bit too hindsight based for my taste. Well, so let's switch then to the defense because this was a defense that hadn't was seemingly finding its groove, and by that I mean playing acceptably terribly. <laughs> this is a defense that had seemed to put it together against the run and had just finished, uh, of course, a, a really good game against Jay Ajayi and held him to a ridiculously low number of yards. And, and then, of course, you've got this week where the secondary seemed to fall apart. So what, what, what was it about the secondary's play against Chicago that allowed players to run free? Is, really, is it really just them losing someone like Bethay? Um, I mean, you've got Rashard Robinson. You've got a healthy Jimmy Ward. You've got Tremaine. I'm going to give up big plays but not touchdowns Brock. Um, actually, it should be the other way around. Actually, it's Tremaine Brock. He gives up big plays and touchdowns. Um, but he doesn't give up PIs. That was a bullshit PI call in the end zone, by the way. <laughs> um, but what was different about the way that Chicago was attacking this defense that allowed their wide receivers to run free? You know, I think it, this is is one of those situations where uh, I would actually probably put a little bit more stock in the weather here than in something like the quarterback performance, right? Um, I, I think when you're dealing with like those sort of field conditions where uh, it's it's far easier to like lose your footing, slip and fall on the ground, like 
positions where you are the aggressor and not playing in a passive position where you have to react to someone else, right, is always going to give you somewhat of an advantage, at least uh, in, if you're not the 49ers skill position players because they're just mostly so terrible that it doesn't matter. Um, or even if they do, you don't have a quarterback that can get it there. So as long as you're 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 not really dealing with that scenario, then, uh, you know, when you're the receivers, you know where you're going, it's going to be easier to keep your footing and kind of create that separation in poor weather, I think. So I think that definitely helped. And, um, you know, generally, the secondary just hasn't been playing as well. It seems to be uh, a little bit more of an emphasis on stopping the run uh, in, in the last few weeks here. And so I think that's leaving your cornerbacks a little bit more on an island than they were early on. Um, and they just weren't up to the task, I guess, you know, they, they just weren't able to, to kind of stick with these guys in those conditions. And, um, I, I think it's more just a personnel issue is it, more than anything. So let's switch then to the run defense, because there's a player that we, that is much maligned here on this podcast. And that's one Mr. Nick missing an ankle tackle in the backfield below he is someone we completely we've railed on him all year and rightfully yeah. so he yeah. is terrible he is a special teams player in starters clothing at this point and yet he is our man spotlight tell us player. how you really feel dude he's trash come oh, on he is i he totally is. agree it was just he's uh, absolute trash really funny and, to, and, to have you and go yet, off on him like that here we go here here comes our nick Bellar opus because he is our spotlight player of the week this week because he played his absolute out of his mind, best game since putting on a 49ers uniform in the weather <laughs> against the Bears. This was his best game since taking over a starter. Uh, he has the best run defense grade on the entire team this week, led the 49ers with seven stops. Seven, because I think that ankle tackles become real tackles when you add mud. <laughs> uh what a time to be alive right like man this is this is where we're at right now nick Ballor was one of the the biggest bright spots on the team this week um yeah i mean it was you you kind of mentioned all the stats there and it was really his best performance of the season by a pretty comfortable margin i think and uh you know i think this when you look at the run defense as a whole this was more uh similar to some of the early season performances where things kind of broke down a little bit on on a handful of plays that really especially when you're talking about the red zone right you had the three touchdowns um but on a snap by snap basis it was among the better performance they've had i mean they held him to 3.65 yards per carry uh which is significantly below the 5.03 they've been allowing to running backs uh on the season so far and that actually includes that 503 number includes this jordan howard performance so uh was even a little bit higher than that going into the week um so, yeah, I mean, on the whole, snap-by-snap snap basis, I mean, it was a better performance. Again, still not good. Obviously, they gave up, uh, you know, 117 yards, three touchdowns to, to Jordan Howard. But um, it wasn't that bad, and Nick Ballore was probably uh, the the brightest spot, you know, in that run defense. I think that your note on this point in our agenda is the bestest because your note, and I quote David Newman, Writer extraordinaire. You can read his <laughs> scintillating uh, prose on Niners Nation. Uh, quote, Nick Ballore helped the 49ers to another not completely fucking terrible performance in run defense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's where we're at right now. That is that that's is where exactly we are in week 14 of the 2016 NFL season. 
So this is the part of the year where we're hearing those stories come out about the 49ers being the this version of the 49ers being the worst 49ers team in franchise history. This is the storyline. Of course, they're losing. They've lost now 11 straight. It is the longest losing streak in franchise history. The 1978 team, I think, is the one team that lost more. They lost nine straight games. So I, I loft this question to you first. This is the opening salvo, David. And I think we probably have maybe five minutes to get through a lot of stuff because I went ham on this part of the agenda. Um, what Do you think that this team is the worst 49ers team in franchise history? Well, I'll be quick so we can kind of, uh, you know, I'm going to let you do your thing here with, uh, with some I've of this research. I've got a lot of story to tell, folks. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, I, I think short answer is is no. I don't think this is the worst team. Um, and I'm sure that comes off uh, the wrong way to a lot of people who, you know, probably think that we're Chip Kelly homers and, and are, are kind of we're the ones that finally have the rose colored glasses on uh, this season. But I, I think there's a lot of evidence. You look at the data and it really just doesn't support that. I mean, I think generally people put too much into the actual wins and losses to determine team quality. Um, so obviously those things matter and you have to be able to, to accumulate wins to make your way into the playoffs and all of those sorts of things, right? Wins do matter, but they're not always the best way to judge team quality. Actually, they rarely are the best way to do that because you're, you're taking the thousand plays that happen over a course of a season and you're deciding that you're only going to look at 16 things to determine how good they were over those thousand plays. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And and so teams can be, uh, whether it's due to some poor luck or just kind of, uh, you know, some random variation that happens over the course of an NFL season that's only 16 games long, um, teams can be a much better or worse team than their record states. Uh, And I, I think this is a case where, the 49ers, again, still not a good team, but they're not the worst team in football. Like, I don't think they're this this performance was pretty bad. I mean, this was maybe one of their worst ones all year. But um, on the whole, over the course of the season, like there are probably three, four, maybe five teams that I would say are at least as bad or worse as this 49ers team, which you couldn't say even last year. I mean, last year, I think they were very clearly the worst team in football. And you go and look back at some of these older teams, especially in the the mid 2000 mid aughts there, like there was some really, really bad football. Um, and, and so, yeah, long story short, no, I don't think this is the worst team in franchise history, even in recent franchise history. Um, and, and with that, I will let you do your thing here for a minute. Well, I did a little research on the 78 team and I was not alive in 1978. So I legitimately had to do some research and the basically came away with three things. One, the offense was in shambles. Two, they had some coaching troubles. And three, they had a terrible GM. Their their offense in 1978 for the 49ers, and this was, uh, I believe, Eddie DeBartolo was indeed the owner, but this was pre-Bill Walsh. They, they scored a league-low 219 points. They committed 63 turnovers during the year, which is currently still a record for most turnovers by an NFL franchise. Steve DeBerg and Scott Bull were the quarterbacks. Uh, they had the third lowest completion percentage, 43.7% in the past 38 years. They averaged almost four picks a game. Is that, they is that not good? Um, no, I actually, I actually went and looked when I was going through some of your notes here. I, I went back and looked at their actual interception rate. 
which was terrible. Um, Scott Bowles' yes. interception rate was like 9.1%. He threw 11 yeah. interceptions and only 121 attempts that year. Yeah, uh, it's so bad. Like it's that like, it's season, so bad, I'm giddy. It's so crazy. <laughs> uh, like So that season, since the merger, uh, if you look at quarterback seasons where they threw at least 100 passes is uh i think it was like the 10th or 11th worst in nfl history post-merger uh it's real bad real, dude. real bad scott deberg or steve deberg excuse me was uh not much better no and so so the quarterbacks were absolutely terrible their offense was in shambles and the and their coaching was completely abysmal so pete mccully was fired mid-season their defensive coordinator which was one of the like one of the actual bright spots of the team uh he bolted in the third preseason game, because the <laughs> secondary coach kept ignoring his defensive calls from the press box, and the head coach refused to intervene. Oh, man. That's... Like, can you imagine that? That you're a defensive coordinator, and you call down your play call to the secondary coach, and the secondary coach says, no, nah, I'm not calling that. I'm going to call something else. That's and then you... you're like, dude, head coach, do something. And the coach is like, Internet shrug. Not, not, like, not, bro. Not, not happening. Uh, that's not even my favorite. So, like the the article, I, who was it? It was Eric Branch. Yeah, that that? it was either Eric Branch. Yeah, or Cameron Eric Branch. Um, it was and, Eric Branch. Okay. And so, yeah, he had a lot of. This was a couple weeks ago, I think, right after they had uh, tied the losing streak with nine games. And there, there's some great stuff in that article. Um, but I think my favorite, like. Uh, story in there was where the coach goes over to the sideline and is like who wants to play quarterback and they oh, end up yeah because both both quarterbacks got injured so deberg yeah and bull both got injured and so the coach is like all right <laughs> who wants to play quarterback <laughs> and so they start out with freddie solomon um who at least played quarterback uh, a little bit in college but because of injuries at wide receiver, they had to move him back. And so the guy they put in was a rookie left-handed safety that had a cast on his right arm because he had a broken thumb. Uh, and they, they cut the cast off on the sideline. They <laughs> cut the cast off and let him throw. And he proceeded to throw a couple of interceptions. Yeah, two interceptions. <laughs> like, man, uh, wish, oh, wish that I was alive to see that game. Wow. What a time to be alive. And then, of course, you have you have their general manager, Joe Thomas. He traded basically the franchise for O.J. Simpson, who at that point was the highest paid player move. in the NFL. Yeah. Um, and he couldn't come to camp because he was filming a movie. He was over it. He didn't know the plays. He didn't know the playbook. He released Jim Plunkett before the season, who went on to win two Super Bowls with the Raiders. Uh, they, I mean, he basically, this is Joe Thomas, or Trent Balky is Joe Thomas reincarnate at this point. There were, there were fans that had signs that said, blame Joe Thomas, and the team confiscated him and said they were in poor taste. So the next week, they all showed up with t-shirts that said, blame Joe Thomas. I mean, this is and he our came version down of flying. and yelled at them in the stands. Could yeah. you imagine Balky doing that? That would be so great. I actually can. This is the equivalent of us flying a, a plane over Levi's that says "Fire Balky," right? Like this is where I'm seeing some kind of some similarities here, right? Uh, so 78, I think, is definitely the leading contender for worst team in franchise history. But there are two in the middle of the 2000s that really compete with the 78 team. One is the 2004 team, and I call this the I'm detecting a pattern team because they have a, a really shitty general manager in Terry Donahue, 
a general manager that drafted Rashawn Woods in the first round, uh, someone who would rather be fishing and maybe still is right now. Uh, but you've got Justin Smiley, Shante Spencer, Derek Hamilton, Isaac Sopoaga in the fourth round was a decent pick. The, really, his contribution to the Niners is Andy Lee in the sixth round, uh, which, hey, man, ups to Andy Lee. Love that dude. 10-year Niner. Uh, but you've got a barren roster. This, this was the salary cap hell era. There's a whole website literally called Salary Cap Hell to talk about the 49ers during this time. You've got Jeff Garcia leaving, Terrell Owens leaving, Garrison Hurst leaving. They're replaced with the illustrious Tim Rattay, Ken Dorsey, Cody Pickett. The cowboy, Cody Pickett, do you remember when he was the bright spot of the franchise? Cody Pickett was cool because he played special teams as a quarterback. I don't like to think about those days. It was a dark dark The the whole Jeff Driscoll thing reminded me of this whole thing. It's like, oh my God, he plays special teams. It's like, you don't want your quarterback to play special teams. Nope, not a good thing. Don't. You don't. Absolutely don't. Wide receiving core. Arnez Battle, former quarterback, <laughs> Notre Dame. Cedric Wilson, Brandon Lloyd. Eric, I have no collarbones Johnson, was literally the lone bright spot. I do remember At the that. tight end yep. position. He still, before Vernon Davis, he had the single season record for uh, receptions. Actually, I still think he does because he had 82 receptions. Not in 2004. But I think he ended, he ended up with 82 receptions one year. I, I still think that's the record. I can, I can look that up. All right, he's going to look it up. Um, and so the 49ers in 2004 were still offensively inept. They averaged 1.19 points per drive, which is not good. And their average lead at the beginning of a drive was negative about six points. So every time they had the ball to start a drive, they were losing by nearly a touchdown. Yes, and he did have 82 receptions in 2004 on 117 Odd. targets. Yep. 82 receptions, and it was like for 800 and some odd yards, right? It wasn't yeah, eight, like for an Yeah, 825, two touchdowns. Yep. And then he like he broke his collarbone on a hit, and then he broke his collarbone again, and then maybe he had like a separated shoulder. He was like the the man of glass version of of Eric uh, of uh, of Witten, basically. I just remember like the, that was like really early fantasy football days for me. Um, so so I remember like having Eric Johnson be like the only 49ers offensive player that was worthy of having in fantasy football. Yeah. True story. Before I mean, Jeff Garcia, Terrell Owens, and then Eric Johnson. Yep. I mean, and then 2005, 2005 has a unique distinction because it was the worst team in DVOA history. We love DVOA on this podcast. We think it's the best way to measure the effectiveness and efficiency of a team. Uh, and 2005, that 49ers team has the distinction of being the worst team in in the history of DVOA, and they've been measuring DVOA since 1989. So they had four wins, sure, but they were all against really bad teams. Their average margin of victory was 3.8 points. They beat Tampa Bay, which was about average, Houston and St. Louis twice. Both of those teams were basically the only teams better than the 49ers. Houston was 31st, St. Louis was 30th. Their offense went a full 16 quarters, four games, without scoring a TD at home. The passing game with Alex Smith, man, that guy's come a long way. How many? He had like what, 11 interceptions and one touchdown? Yeah, I believe so. That's uh... and he had one touchdown, like basically in his second to last game, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, touchdown!" Woo! Yeah, I mean that they had was... they had 1,898 passing yards in 2005. That's the lowest total in the entire. 
decade of the 2000s. And the thing was about 2005 is that when you look at when you look at 2004, their defense was not the worst. When even when you look at 1978, their defense wasn't the worst. When you look at 2005, they had a pretty shitty offense, but they also had an, a pretty terrible defense. I mean, Derek Smith, uh, he's like a poor man, Zach Thomas, emphasis on the poor. <laughs> he had like three good years, and that was it. Jeff Ulbrich is, still remains famous for driving barefoot in a Prius because that reduced the battery spend. Like the battery, the hybrid spend. I remember reading an article <laughs> that he, like, he, he was a big fan of eating a rainbow. He wanted to eat a rainbow every day, and he wanted to drive his hybrid car barefoot because less pressure on the gas pedal meant less energy spend. <laughs> like, like, this is what we were working with. You do you, man. You do you. You know? And here we are. So, I mean, look, I've laid, out, I've laid out the case for all three teams based on the, the, based on the tapestry that I've created here. Which <laughs> would you say is the worst team in franchise history? 1978, 2004, 2005, or 2016? I mean, I think the it'll be really interesting to see when they get DVOA to go back to 78, uh, what that, that 78 team looks like in comparison. So you kind of have, can put them on the same sort of scale, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and be able to kind of account for the error and everything there a little bit. I mean, I kind of have to go with 2005, mostly just because I can remember how bad that team was. I mean, things in 78, I mean, that's... To be honest, like that's probably it from the sounds of it. Like you look at some of the numbers and you compare them to to other teams in that era, and man, it was really bad. And then you get all of the the hilarious stories mixed in there with it. Like it's a it's a good recipe for just an awful awful. And buns fighting fans outside a candlestick. Yeah, like it, there, there's a lot of great things there. But I mean, man, that 2005 team was was special. <laughs> they, they were. That was just so, so terrible. Like, they were so awful to watch. I feel like in the um, short bus special. And, so, yeah, I'm, I don't I'm think gonna it's I'm going to go ahead and close. I'm actually, I'm going to say 2004. And I'm going to say 2004, and it's not even close. Here is why. Dennis Erickson is your head coach. Terry Donahue is your general manager. Right? You've got, at the very least, you've got, in 2005, you've got Scott McLuhan. And you've got Alex Smith, Frank Gore, for F's sake. Like, you, you've got at least the nucleus of something. It, your, your star player in 2004 is Kevin Barlow. Yeah, but those things don't make them better on the field that year. Like, no, but... It, but just but, because but that bodes about... well for them, like, long... T- I'm talking about, like, when I'm making this judgment, I'm talking about what the team was on the field. What was the worst team from a performance standpoint? And I think the 2005 team was definitely better, definitely worse because Alex Smith, Alex Smith was awful. Like, no, like everybody wants to to kind of forget about those early Alex Smith years. Like Alex Smith was legitimately for the early part of his career, one of the worst Terrible. starting quarterbacks in NFL history. Like that is not an exaggeration or hyperbole. Like he was legit one of the worst that had ever played the game in those early years. And then, you know, Props to him. He was able to turn things around and, uh, you know, make a career out of this thing when when it looked like that just wasn't going to be the case. But even though you have those pieces there and those some of those things tended to work out later, like 
on the field, they were still worse that year to me. I don't know. Like, I think, I think we honestly, I, and I agree, 78 is probably the one, but I wasn't alive then, so I can't choose that one. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm still, I'm still going to go 2004 because I'm always going to go to hope, right? If, if you have a shitty team and also no hope, that's the worst thing ever. And performance wise, 2004 and 2005, I don't think are too far off. And I'm not even talking about win loss total. I think you look at the performance of the quarterbacks that are Tim Rattay, Ken Dorsey, and Cody Pickett. They're they're a little bit better than uh, than Alex Smith. You look at Kevin Barlow. He is not much better than a young Frank Gore. And Frank Gore didn't even start his first two or three years, uh, or his first. This is first, first. Yeah, yeah. It was his first year, but he didn't start the first couple weeks of the season. He didn't start getting uh, significant playing time until later on in the year. So. I still think 2014 or 2004, um, but even then, none. All of those teams are way worse than 2016. I think ultimately yeah. is the takeaway. So with that, we get to the stat of the week, uh, and that's going to be a uh, really. If we're talking about sucking, this is the ultimate <laughs> sucking. The 49ers pass offense DVOA was negative 135.7. That's not good. That's the worst DVOA since week three of 2015. If you don't remember that, of course, that was Colin Kaepernick's four interception game against the Cardinals. And that clocked in at a negative 170.5. But I actually, while we're talking about the historical teams, you did a little bit of research on some of the worst quarterbacking games in 49ers history. And I would I I would love to hear this stat again because it's it's pretty eye opening. And it, it honestly bolsters your 2005 case. But let me hear the stat. It, it really does. So, I mean, um, yeah, I started to kind of go through like when you when you uh, go to Football Outsiders premium database, they have the game by game DVOA numbers going back, you know, through all the years that they have it. So back to 89. And I had started to uh, go through and get all of those and compile them into one sheet so I could sort them and see which ones were the best and worst uh, in DVOA history. And I didn't make it all the way back there. I think by the time that I ended up having to to go do something else like I got to 2003. So we wanted to say recent 49ers history. When you look at the pass offense DVOA numbers in that time frame. So again, 2003 to now, um, the 2005 season had six of the bottom 11 pass offense performances. It was like the first third, fifth, and then a couple others down at the bottom. But like that, Again, that team, what they were doing from a pass offense standpoint uh, was really just incredible, like rarefied air there with how bad they were um, from a pass offense. I mean, from every standpoint, but especially a pass offense standpoint. Oh, Ted Tolner, what are you going to do? All right. So we've got to get to NFL quick hits and we've got to get through this in like maybe six minutes or less because we still have to preview the Jets game. And the second version of the let's not screw up the number two pick bowl. So let's go through this as quickly as possible. David, number one, dress code violations in the NFL are stupid. Hashtag Cam Newton. Things that you could do outside of benching your former MVP quarterback to address a dress code violation. One, fine. Two, like make him run some extra sprints or do some sort of terrible conditioning drill after practice one day. Three, make him sing. I'm a little teapot at the next team meeting. <laughs> um, four, like 
anything else besides put him on the bench for fucking Derek Anderson. Like and spot the other team three points. Yeah, and like, look, Cam said it afterwards. Uh, that that one play wasn't going to be the difference in that game. Like, Seattle was clearly the better team, and like that was a, a blowout for a number of reasons. But like, th- it just makes no sense. Like, how are you going to be- bench the best player on your team um, for something stupid like not wearing a tie? It's not like dude. It's came culture, in, bro. Like, it's culture. It's not like dude came in like with ripped up clothes, like looking like a homeless person or something like that. Like he was. He still came in with nice. a legit Steve yeah. Jobs mock turtleneck <laughs> and and a solid hat. Is all I'm saying. Like that. That was his outfit. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, whatever. I think that it's it's an anachronism. This idea that you're going to establish culture by wearing by making yeah. people wear a tie uh, is complete bullshit. Because yeah. you know what. Uh, the Texans all wore Letterman's jackets, and you all know how that turned out. That that <laughs> did not turn out okay. Let them wherever wear whatever the hell they want, and instead help them win games. Number two, with Gronk's injury, the Raiders will end up as the number one seed in the AFC. Uh, no, I I'd have to go look at the schedule to be really sure, but I'm going to still say no. Um, I I think. The Patriots, so both the, both the Patriots and the Raiders are sitting at ten and two. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Patriots' schedule and the Raiders' schedule, pulling those up right this second. Uh, the Raiders, I'm sorry, the Patriots are against the Ravens, the Broncos, the Jets, and the Dolphins. Broncos in Denver, Dolphins in Miami. The Raiders, on the other hand, the Raiders have. At the Chiefs, at the Chargers, Colts at home, at the Broncos. Yeah, um, I think I'm going to lean. Yeah, I think those schedules are fairly similar. Um, I think I still lean towards New England pulling out that number one seed. I mean, here's the thing, like Oakland, even just, uh, what, a year or two ago. So AFC best. Uh, Number three, which two teams end up as the wild cards in the AFC? Don't dilly dally. Do it. Um, let me, I don't even know. Oh, so we talked about this. So I think we're going to get, um, I think you get another AFC West team, right? So you get Kansas city probably. And then it comes down to what an AFC Steelers, North team, like Steelers, Steelers, Dolphins, Colts, Titans, Broncos. Dolphins. Um, I will say that the Broncos, Steelers really. and Ravens find a way to get, like, I think whoever doesn't win the division, I think one of them find a way to get in there. Oh, with the, right. with the interesting. Chiefs. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So then you've got uh, the same question, but for the NFC. NFC. Let's take a look at the standings here. This is, I don't, yeah, it's it's crazy how little I look at these things during the week. Um, so we're going to just pull this up right now. So right now we got the Dallas, Giants. Uh, leads the NFC East. Detroit Lions Tampa lead the NFC North. Bay. Falcons lead the NFC South. Seattle Seahawks lead the NFC West. Really, the teams in contention, I think, for wild card are going to be Tampa Bay. Outside shot, New Orleans Saints, although they're probably dead. Minnesota Vikings, Green Bay Packers, New York Giants, and the Washington Redskins. God, that is tough. There are not a lot of great teams. I think the Giants fall off, actually. like I, I, I don't think they hang on too. to one of them. Um, and so I think that really puts in probably the... The Bucks. I I wouldn't be surprised if Washington made a little bit of a run there and managed to to sneak in. Um, so I'll go. I guess let, let's go Washington and Tampa Bay. Yeah, I I actually think it's Washington and Green Bay. I could see that, but too. 
yeah, yeah. I, that 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 doesn't surprise me at all. Um, all right, so I don't know if you watched the Warriors game at all, but Clay him up. I mean, he was he was on fire. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably pretty reasonable that he would have uh, at least approached eighty. It would have been close. I watched that game through three quarters, and I was laying in bed, and he Kerr pulls him out, <laughs> and I look at my wife and I go, "Yeah, it's over." I turn the TV off and go to sleep. It was the most glorious sleep I've ever had. I mean, what? It was like 30 points at halftime, wasn't it, or something like that? I mean... Uh, yeah, it was absurd. Yeah. Uh, all right. And then finally, uh, and and I'll give you a couple prompts if you need, but there are... Now that we have have we have a bit of hindsight into this season, what do you think was the worst off-season move for a franchise? Was it Brock Osweiler? I mean, I think, yeah, of of the ones that are kind of jumping to mind right now, unless I'm just forgetting about something, I think it pretty clearly has to be giving all of that money to Brock Osweiler. Well, so you've got a couple of different decisions, right? Because you've got free agent decisions, you've got draft decisions, but you've got Brock Osweiler, right? You've got um, the Jaguars signing Malik Jackson. Yeah, also for not, 90 mil. Not great. You've got Josh Norman, of course. I think that one's been okay. Yeah, you've got Casey Hayward. Uh, the Packers letting Casey Hayward go. You've got the the Packers giving Jeff Fisher a two year extension. Okay, so I mean, if if we're including that, that just barely. <laughs> I mean, absolutely, it's Jeff Fisher getting an extension. Like, how in the fuck does that happen? Uh, it I mean, makes yeah, you get, no sense whatsoever. You've got uh, the Bucks and Robert Aguayo. Oh man, that was really bad too. Um, I mean, giving up a first round pick for a kicker might be one of the only things that can approach they didn't give giving up a Brock. first round pick. They they gave up a they they, they moved used up a into first the second round, round. Or no, was it a second rounder? Whatever. It was a second they round used pick. a second round pick on a kicker. Like kickers are not draft picks. We've had the punters are not draft picks. Kickers are not draft picks. Like no, absolutely not. Um, it's it's maybe one of the only moves like taking a, a, a kicker that high. Uh, Maybe the only thing that can approach giving Brock Osweiler like 18 million a year or whatever it was he got. Um, yeah, those are those are very close. Yeah, I think I would it, probably it, still lean Brock Osweiler because I think that's going to be a problem that they unfortunately have to deal with for for quite a while. At but, least another two years. Yeah. So based on we'll, his contract, we'll go with that one. All right. So let's get to this Jets preview then. Uh, and this is really this is don't screw up. Number two, part two is really what it is. Uh, it, it's going to be one of those things where this is a team that could legitimately lose to the 49ers and we don't have to deal with weather. We're now at home. We play a little better at home as most teams do. And the jets play a little worse on the road as most teams do. And so you're at this point now where you could legitimately win this game and just fuck it all up. So what are the basics? <laughs> This is another matchup where two bottom five teams are playing. The Jets are actually worse than the 49ers based on DVOA, and that, that's not good. You've got different metrics that indicate that this the perfect embodiment of average, their point differential, is points scored 131, points against 131. Like, they are exactly average. <laughs> and yet they blew the hell out of it. And, and it took... A forty-one to ten, a forty-one to ten win to get to average. God, yeah. I mean, this is going to be a game that, like, you probably don't like. Let's be real; you probably don't want to watch this game. Like, 
if you can find something else to do, like go do that thing instead. Like, but let's say that you're a masochist like us because we do watch every snap of the season, whether it be in a condensed game format, a game film format, or a live format. <laughs> in one of those formats, <laughs> we watch every snap of the season. So if you were to focus on something to watch for this game, what would it be? So I think one thing that sticks out kind of right away, right, is the this whole Jimmy Ward, Brandon Marshall thing. I mean, that was a game early in Jimmy Ward's career that uh, really stuck with a lot of people for quite a long time. And it, it took a bit for him to kind of, uh, I think, shake that in some people's minds. Like, I think finally this year we started to see some, uh, you know, more good performances from him and people started to to give him a little bit more credit. But, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see whether or not he's able to kind of hold up. I mean, he's not going to be matched up uh, every snap or anything like that with Brandon Marshall. I mean, Marshall lines up. Uh, kind of all over the place. He'll line up on the left or the right in the slot as well. Um, whereas with Ward, you're also going to see him kind of move around. The 49ers with their cornerbacks don't um, have like specific sides for their their corners, and they also don't follow. They kind of do uh, a boundary corner and a field corner. So somebody that's on the short side of the field if the ball's on one hash and somebody that's on the wide side of the field. Um, usually Tremaine Brock is the guy that's on the wide side of the field. So... It, because of that, because of how they do that rotation. And then, of course, you get Jimmy Ward bumping down into the slot uh, majority of the time when they go to their sub packages. So he's also going to kind of line up all over the formation. And it just may not necessarily work out to where he's on Brandon Marshall a large percentage of the time. But they they are inevitably going to, to have some snaps where they're matched up against each other. Uh, and so I think it'll be interesting to watch. I mean, uh, they're, they're going to throw a lot of vertical routes. I mean, they like to try to push the ball downfield. Uh, with Fitzpatrick, even though that may not be in their best interest most of the time. Um, but you have, uh, you know, kind of a lot of isolation routes, a lot of vertical routes there where they're going to, you know, especially with Brandon Marshall, just kind of trust him to win some of those one on one matchups. So, uh, yeah, I think that that particular matchup there is something that will be if you're just trying to, again, outside of the outcome of the game and just look at uh, some of these young players, some players that are a little bit more interesting that might be a part of this team for a long period of time. Uh, that's something I, I think to watch there. Did you know that Brandon Marshall doesn't even remember that game? I, I did hear that that this week, which uh, is not surprising to me whatsoever. He was hopped up on so many painkillers that he actually does not remember completely abusing Ward that game. Yeah, I'm, I'm, like, I'm sure like, Ward think doesn't about want what to that remember means. either. Think about right. <laughs> think about what that means for your life and like for your body, right? Like it just it's. I think this is another discussion for another time. Maybe we address this in the offseason. But sure. I saw an article today that was like, if the NFL were to go the way of gladiator games, you know how it kind of gets, it fades off as an anachronism of of whatever culture is at that time. I wonder if the NFL will do that eventually. But you know what? That's way too way, fucking serious. Yeah, yeah don't want to. No, you know what? Yeah. I don't want to. You know what? Hold on. Hold on. Yeah, let's get back to it. So Bryce Petty versus the <laughs> secondary. Uh, he, Bryce Petty looked pretty terrible. Not gonna you lie, don't say. he looked he looked really <laughs> awful. So th- I think this is because so Bryce Petty he is the starting quarterback for the New York Football Jets, and he did not look good. Of course, he started at Baylor, which I watched him a lot at Baylor. I watched him destroy Texas a couple of times, and he locks on to his receivers. If you think Colin Kaepernick locks on to receivers. Colin Kaepernick is going to look like Joe Montana 
compared to how frequently Bryce Petty blocks onto his receivers. He looked terrible. He had two passes basically in the game against the Colts. One was the out route and the other was the deep route. And he completed on one interception, like, and I say complete in the loosest sense of the term because he completed to the other team. But it was just one of those passes where he was like, I'm throwing deep, I'm throwing deep, I'm throwing deep, I'm throwing it deep. Oh, shit, safety's there. Pick off. Like, he just, the, the safety basically just stared at him and said, you're, you're really going to do this? You're, you're, you're really going to do this? Yeah, I'm going to pick you off. Like, it was bad, dude. It was really bad. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that that's unexpected uh, whatsoever. I mean, the Jets quarterback situation is is really bad. I mean, it's it's one of the few that can compete with what the 49ers have had going on. I mean, and they've got four of them. Yeah, they've got uh, they've got a whole slate of craptastic quarterbacks like it's uh, really kind of impressive. The group that they've assembled there. Um, and, and Ryan so, the beard, Fitzpatrick, uh, Gino Glassjaw, uh, and you've got Christian don't draft me Hackenberg and then Bryce can't play football. Petty. Great. All-star team right there. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, so I think defensively for the 49ers, right? Like the big thing is obviously going to be the run game. Um, I, I mean, Matt Forte and, and what they're doing in the run game is maybe the only competent aspect that they have going on. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, the passing game, if you can't put it together for a week like this, like, man, that's going to be really rough. Like they, they should be able to, again, the, the receivers, uh, outside of Brandon Marshall, especially like, aren't that great, but the, the guy they have throwing into him is really going to make things difficult for them to get a whole lot going in the passing game. Their offensive line isn't very good. I mean, I feel like we've said this for how many games in a row and it hasn't really made a difference and the 49ers still haven't been able to generate pressure. So you probably have to assume that that's going to remain true here. But, uh, you know, again, offensive line for the jets has really struggled and they've had some problems, especially at tackle tackle has been kind of a big weak point for them. So, um, will they be able to get pressure off the edge with guys like Eli Harold and Ahmad Brooks? Almost certainly not. So, uh, yeah, who knows? I mean, I I mean, we've been here before. We've said the same thing. How many times, right? We said it against Seattle. Yep. We said it against uh, uh, Miami, who, who was starting three backups, right? Like yep. we've said so many. Will it? No. The answer is no. So I think the other side of the ball um, is maybe then a, a little bit more interesting um, in a sense of one. What do we see from Kaepernick, you know, coming off that uh, really awful game and, and really just kind of a strange back to back performance there, having one of the better games in recent memory with one of his worst games in recent memory. Um and so seeing how he does uh, against the Jets defense that hasn't really been that good. I mean, if well, that's the thing, right? Is you think to yourself, OK, this is the Todd Bowles defense starring Darrell Revis. You think this defense is going to be good. You think of Muhammad Wilkerson, right? You think of Leonard Williams. You, you think this defense is going to be good. And yet they're not. Like th- This is a defense that can be taken advantage of. And so you think of you know a, a bounce back narrative for Colin Kaepernick, given that he has been announced as a starter, and and I think this is going to be one of the stories coming out of this week. Yeah, I mean, and it really, if you're going to take advantage of them, it's in the passing game. I mean, their run defense is still very good because of guys like you mentioned, guys like Leonard Williams, Muhammad Wilkerson, the guys they have on the defensive line. Um, their run defense right now is second in DVOA, so uh, they they're still very good on in, in that respect, but. Their pass defense is dead last right now. So um, it, it's a situation where it's going to have to kind of fall on Colin Kaepernick's shoulders in, in that passing game to really do much offensively. 
Um, the 49ers have struggled run blocking most of the year, as we've mentioned several times, and they just really can't get anything consistent going there when you're talking about the, the, the running backs, at least like obviously what Colin Kaepernick's done has been generally very positive in the run game. Um, but when you're, you're talking about guys like Carlos Hyde and, and the rest of the backs there, like haven't gotten a whole lot of consistently, uh, positive yards. So I don't think that we're going to see that, uh, in this game, like almost certainly going to kind of shut that down and have a very crappy yards per carry average from the running backs. But, uh, I, I think you could still see Colin Kaepernick, you know, again, hopefully take advantage of a weak secondary. Darrell Revis is not playing. I mean, he is very clearly mailed it in, not literally mailed it in. Yeah. And he's not even close to the same guy. So, and everybody else that they have around him are even worse. I think a matchup there that, that is kind of interesting is, is Curly, uh, against, I think it's Buster screen is their slot guy who has been very, like one of the worst cornerbacks in football this year. So, um, that is a a name like Buster as a cornerback. I would imagine you would not do very well. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I think there, there is some and opportunity there for that game for back, Curly, for sure. right? It's a revenge game for Curly cause he was, uh, oh, yeah, that's a right. New York chat. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I mean, that. extra motivation, you know, you got that. So, all right, it's time to make this game a little bit fun because we, we honestly got a little tired of breaking down games in the same old, we're going to lose way. So we decided we were going to run through a couple of trades that would make watching this game a bit more fun. Really, there are only two criteria for this. One, we have to trade something, meaning you can't get something without giving something up. So we can't just take Leonard Williams and say, call it a day. But it does need to make the game more watchable or interesting. So, uh, David, I'll off the first trade to you. One, would you trade Leonard Williams for either Buckner or Armstead? given the fact that Williams would improve our run game by quite a bit and, you know, would probably still give you some of the passing game, but you would indeed have to give up one of your, one of your last two first round draft picks. It's it's, I mean, so I think in the context of this game, right? Like obviously with Armstead being out, we'll kind of eliminate him for, for at least part of the discussion here. But I, I think it's, it's an interesting conversation with Buckner because when you look at what they were as prospects coming out, I think it was, uh, you know, very similar, like they were both very highly touted. Um, both were very productive college players. I think you could even argue that Buckner was maybe the more productive college player. So uh, and it's hard to know how much to put on Buckner, uh, you know, and his kind of shortcomings somewhat this year, or maybe not quite having the the splashy year that you would have hoped from a player like that coming out um, with, you know, everything that's going on around him and what's going on with Jim O'Neill and, and his scheme and, and all of those other considerations, right? Um, Leonard Williams, you have a little bit more of him, right? We've seen he's been in the league for, what, an extra year or two? No, just one year. Um, and so he's a little bit more established at this point and uh, has, has put together some really good stretches of football. So I think right now in the context of this game, Yes. I mean, I think uh, he is is really a dominant force in the run game and is a type of player that could single handedly make the 49ers run defense much better. Um, and he's st- he's still got I mean, that's his clear area of strength, but he's a solid pass rusher still. I think he has uh, seven sacks. sacks. Oh, I think PFF has him at six or seven. Excuse me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's got he, he's got a fairly decent um, pass rush productivity so far this year. So he's he's uh among his position group like is still a solid pass rusher and then you have somebody that's you know maybe the best run defender at their position right now so 
I, I think, yeah, in the context of this game, I, I think I probably would make that swap for Leonard Williams uh, because he's going to help the 49ers right now. But I think it's it's still an interesting conversation when you're talking about what would be the the better move kind of long term. All right. So now we're going to move to a more fun trade. And I want to know if you would do this. I would do it in a heartbeat just because I want to see what happens. But uh, would you trade Ryan Fitzpatrick's beard for Colin Kaepernick's tattoos? So just picture this. You've got a fully haired Colin Kaepernick, both beard and fro, but completely naked arm wise. And then you've got a beardless Ryan Fitzpatrick with like half sleeves. Oh man. Um, I, I almost like the idea more if the tattoos had to go on Ryan Fitzpatrick's face. Um, so they just replaced <laughs> to make up for his, his beard. beard. Um, you just kind of crammed all of Kaepernick's tattoos uh, onto his jawline. Um, and it just says faith like right across <laughs> his chin. <laughs> uh, so, so I think if we can make that happen, uh, I'm, I'm all in with that. Uh, it's funny. That kind of reminds me. So there's a, another podcast, NBA podcast that I listen to pretty frequently, um, which is the, the starters now on, on NBA TV. Um, and they did a thing uh, on one of their shows last week, which was they took like, would you rather questions from uh, like, you know, mailbag sort of questions. Uh, and somebody was asked the question, would you rather age only from the neck up or only from the neck down from from here on out? So you could have your the rest of your hmm. body like below just, you know, you're you're still able to move well, all that stuff and your face just gets old as balls. And I mean, and so you also have to consider like your mind is part of that, right? So everything from the neck up ages, normal, normal aging, but you just stop aging right below the neck or do you do the reverse? Which one would you do there? Oh God, that is an interesting question, <laughs> right? Um, I don't know why, but honestly, that just, the, the, the Fitzpatrick having tattoos on his face just kind of makes me think of that. Oh God. I would say I would prefer to age from the waist down and keep my face in mind but that's 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 a difficult decision it's really the mind that makes it difficult right because you're like i want to stay sharp for for uh ever however long um i'm gonna go stephen hawking on this i'm literally just gonna get like a mouth tube and move around and be like what's up but also very misleading right you see this normal looking if you have like clothes on assuming like normal looking dude right there as far as you can see then you take those clothes off and it's like whoa um i think i'd rather go so this was like the argument that one of them made uh for aging from the neck up which was you could just go all uncle drew right like your face is is still old but you could show up at these uh rec basketball games and everybody just thinks you're some grandpa and then you can go and you know do work yeah but then the flip side is true right like so your mind doesn't age so you or I guess it's the other way around. Your body is completely uh, young, but your brain ages. Yeah. So you are going to die and you know you're going to die. And your body's like, I want to do some push ups. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a tough choice, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know what I'd rather do. Crazy. Well, all right. Moving on. So give me hit me hit me with a trade. Hit me with a trade and then we'll move on to the predictions and call it a day because we've um 
Yeah, we've gone on way too long. <laughs> so I think um, one, if we we go to kind of a non-player sort of trade uh, that I think is is kind of interesting. So uh, I think if we were to ask this question a year ago, it would be you know a very obvious, easy answer. But uh, I'm going to say, would you want to trade Jim O'Neill's blitz packages for Todd Bowles's blitz packages? Um, and I say That's that a... it's it's not as obvious now. Because the Jets might have the worst pass rush in football. They're, they're dead last in adjusted sack rate um, that they've generated on defense. Like, they, they don't have a whole lot going on there. I mean, they have a couple of players that have been solid. Um, but on the whole, like, probably at least on par with the 49ers in terms of uh, the, the pass rush, maybe even a little bit worse there. So clearly, what they've been doing this year, for whatever reason hasn't been getting the job done, uh, which has obviously been the case for the 49ers and Jim O'Neill. So do, do you still make that trade just based on reputation or uh, are you a little bit more hesitant by those numbers? I make that trade because I don't trust a defensive coordinator named Casey. Wait, yeah. wait, what? Jet, Jets, de- Jets defensive coordinator, Casey Rogers. <laughs> I didn't, I, I, didn't I don't trust. I don't yeah, I don't trust a human being named Casey. Here's what I think. I think that while a head coach does have a strong influence on what the coordinator does, they don't have complete control over what that coordinator does. And I do think that while Todd Bowles, I think that when you're a head coach, you have so much more to to, to do that you can't really control every single bit of the blitz packages that you can on defense. So I do think that Casey, Casey Rogers, to be specific, is probably running a, a good bit of his playbook. He's probably not just implementing Todd Bull's playbook. And so at that point, I would say, if I'm trading a coordinator's playbook for a head coach's playbook that was proved that has proven to be successful in the uh, in Arizona and in the NFL when you've got the talent to do it, yeah, absolutely I'm going to do that. I mean, he this is, you know, he's returning for a second year. And he had a, a pretty good 2015, right? Like, it wasn't terrible, but it was okay. Um, and, and so I think that all in all, you're look- if you're looking at the decline, you're looking not so much at scheme or blitz packages, and you're looking more so at personnel. And so you look at it a couple different ways. One, is he running bulls as blitz packages? And if so, then I would say, you know what? You know what? Either way, I just want to get rid of Jim O'Neill. I'm trying to justify it some way. I can't. I can't figure out a smart <laughs> I mean, way to do it. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. Can't can't find a smart way to do it. I'm just gonna. I want to get rid of Jim O'Neill. So I think uh, one other, like one last one that I guess I'll, I'll, I'll throw out here, which I think is uh, you know more obvious. But again, the, the the idea of this isn't that they're necessarily realistic trades or things that they they would actually do. It's just what would make this game more entertaining to watch as a 49ers fan. And I think. Uh, a, a little wide receiver swap would make that the case. I think if you replace Brandon Marshall uh, and Torrey Smith, that's something that would really work out in the 49ers' favor, um, more from a, a style standpoint, right? I think you, we again, we talked about the, the Jets' cornerbacks being really bad this year, and, and I just don't know that you look at the 49ers' group of wide receivers and, and have a lot of confidence that they can take advantage of that weak group. Um, and you know, while Torrey Smith is probably the most talented receiver on the 49ers roster, you don't have a quarterback that can take advantage of what he does best, right? Like 
nobody on the 49ers roster on, on the quarterback position um, is able to kind of throw the the big deep ball. I'm not talking about just like throwing downfield on a rope like Colin Kaepernick wants to do, like taking that deep 50, 60 yard shot downfield and, and letting Torrey Smith run under a pass. Like that's not something that Colin Kaepernick or Blaine Gabbert really has in their arsenal at this point. And so I think what fits Colin Kaepernick better are more the Anquan Bolden types, right? Guys that maybe don't necessarily get all that open, but can make contested, you know, they have a wide catch catch radius. Yeah, they can, uh, they have strong hands, can, can catch that fastball that he throws. And so I think you put somebody like Brandon Marshall there and I think you you really could see like good things from that passing game happening just because I think that's a little bit better of a pairing of skills um, th- than anybody that the 49ers have currently. All right. So what's your final prediction then? Uh, I mean, this is a game that we probably need to lose if we want to stay in the hunt for number two. But, you know, you're you're eight and one on the year straight up two and seven versus spread. I am eight and one on the year as well, three and six versus spread. Yeah, you you, you picked that line. Niners win last week. Took the L in both of them. I know. What are you gonna do? Yeah. You know what? You go. Sometimes you go bigger. You go home. <laughs> and last week I went home. So the Vegas line has the Niners at uh, about two and a half point underdogs, which no means favorites. That, oh, favorites. Favorites. Favorite oh, by right. two minus. and a half. I'm sorry. Um, I'm not used to seeing that minus sign. Yeah. I just presumed it was a plus. Um, I believe. That is the first time all season they have been favored. And it's not even quite like at least the consensus line. I'm sure it's, uh, you know, up to three at some of the books. But um, so normally like a three point favorite home favorite means is basically means that they're even. because they're at home. Yeah. So you get a yeah. three point advantage basically for being the home team. So they're not even quite getting that. Um, and then 538 has, you know, I guess kind of similar where it's that uh, they have them a little under 50 percent at 43 percent win probability. Um, I mean, this is being that it's a home game. Uh, I think very clearly their best chance to win a game left this season. I mean, the other one is, is Los Angeles, but that one's on the road and, you know, I don't know who I'm not entirely convinced that they're going to go in and be able to win that game. So, uh, yeah, I think this is the opportunity. I'm still not going to go with it. I'm, I still don't think that they win this game mostly because I'm hoping that they don't win this game really would like to have that number Ah. two pick. Um, so I'll say from a score standpoint, I think it's going to be a pretty ugly game, but a lot of times those games can end up with a decent amount of points. Um, so I'll say that the jets managed to pull this out. Let's go 20 to 14. So I was going to go 24, 27. And I'm still undecided as to who wins the game. <laughs> uh, 24-27. God damn it. You know what? I think the Niners win. Nice. I'm going to pull ahead in that record there. I know you are. And you know what? I'm okay with that. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm okay with losing on all fronts. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this I, is, I think... again, this is the one right here. If they, if they don't do it, it just might not happen. I know it's just, and you know what? I, I don't want it to happen, but I guess at this point I'm going to win either way. Either, <laughs> either my team gets a draft pick or I beat you. And that's really all that matters. There you go. So that about does it for this week's edition of the better rivals podcast. I told you we were going to go almost an hour and a half. And I think 
if uh, after I edit the first bit where your wonderful fiance was trying to interrupt the podcast, <laughs> um, I think we'll end up at about an hour and uh, 20 minutes or so. Hey, sometimes, you know, you just need to you need to talk through it. You know, it's a rough time out there for Four Nairs fans. Um, we're, we're not. Twe- I'm not tweeting through it right now. I've, I've I just wanted to live through all of the shitty Niner teams, really, is what it was. I went through memory lane, and I was like, oh, my God, I remember writing about all of these teams. This was awesome. Um, it was so funny because I, uh, you know, I got, like, kind of the shell of things together that we were going to talk about. And then once I jumped back in there and was going to start adding a little bit more substance, I saw that the section on is this the worst team in 40 or, like, worst 49 team in franchise history, it just was, like, the whole document at this point. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty, pretty funny. Yeah. All right, so we got we to gotta come up with a call to action. Uh, I was leaning kind of like hashtag worst team or hashtag worst 49ers team specifically. Like, which, which one would you choose? Like, based on the case that we laid out, which would you choose? 78, 2004, 2005. Um, we could do, like, which trade would you make? I mean, what, what, what do you want to do at this point in terms of call to action? You could Hashtag also, don't fuck it up. <laughs> I mean, you could also do... I was trying to think of something like, yeah, along those lines. Uh, hashtag don't screw two, part two. That's too long. That's a, I mean, I could do that. Don't screw two, part two. Actually, I'm on board with that. All right. Okay. Yeah, let's... Uh, Hashtag... Hold on. Follow us here. Hashtag don't screw up two, part two. Yeah. Live sounds as yeah. good as anything right. we've got. Don't screw... Wait, don't fuck, screw I two. It don't get rid of the up. Don't screw two. Okay, don't screw two part, part two. two. Yep. All right. Don't screw two part two. Hashtag don't screw two part two. That's gonna be a tongue twister. Either Good way. Luck. Best of luck to you. Yeah. You yeah. You <laughs> if you know what? If you nail it, you nailed it. Unless you're not screwing two, which is a different kind of thing altogether. But thanks again for tuning in. <laughs> David, where can they find you on the Twitters? Uh they can find me at David Newman. With an you can always find me at Better Rivals. Thanks again for tuning in. I really hope you're watching something else uh, instead of the <laughs> Jets Niners game. But if you are, uh, I will be live tweeting it as usual because you know what? God damn it, I'm a masochist at heart and I'm getting used to this. And as always, go Niners. I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart. <laughs>